Hey, good afternoon, everyone. We are here uh, at Town Hall, and we're doing another um, podcast of our, our Garner Station podcast show. And today we're happy to have with us uh, Drew Cook, who is uh, Garner born and bred, and uh, went to Garner High, isn't that right? And then became the principal at, at Garner Magnet High, uh, and has moved on to central office at uh, Wake County um, public school system and we're going to talk about uh, what's happening these days and talk a little bit about Drew's background and we're uh, we're real happy to have you Drew. Rick, thank, thank you for the invitation it's uh, it's always great to be back even if in this case it's virtual um, looking forward to the conversation. And we are virtual I said we were at town hall by that I meant me of course and you're, you're talking to us uh, from from your home. Um, uh, you're you're pretty well known in Garner, and but but there's uh, probably some folks who don't know a whole lot about you, um, or or maybe anything. So tell us a little bit about your background. Um, talk about your your Garner ties and growing up in Garner. Yes, sir. Yes, so I, I grew up, you know, as you said, born and bred in the town of Garner, and um, grew up in a in a household where my mom was a, a elementary school special education teacher. Um, both over at Garner Elementary and Creech Road Elementary, where she retired from just a couple of years ago. Um, my dad was primarily in law enforcement and dabbled in politics a little bit. And so I, I, I joke with people a lot that I guess when you cross, you know, a special education teacher and a cop, you know, might end up with a high school principal somehow. Um, but, you know, I, I think that um, had a, just a, a very blessed and fortunate childhood growing up in a, in a town like Garner. Um, you know, still have, as you would imagine, lifelong friends, even folks that I don't see for, you know, years at a time. Um, growing up in a community like Garner, um, you know, Garner Optimist Basketball, Garner Parks and Recreation, uh, Garner Baseball, all of those things participating as a as a kid growing up. I think just in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's increasingly rare to be able to have a community as, as close-knit to Garner as Garner is, but yet still have all the conveniences of the modern world. Um, and so in, in that respect, you know, Garner's always home and my parents still reside there. And um, it's always great to be back in town and catching up with folks. And uh, and you played a little bit. You played basketball at Garner High, isn't that right? Well, Eddie Gray would say that I tried to play basketball. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I did try. And I, I, I did have the good fortune my junior year of playing with an All-American by the name of Donna Williams. And so, um, you know, I learned a lot. Athletics can teach you a, a lot of a lot of lessons about hard work and preparation, but it can also teach you, certainly in my case, uh, humility and learning to some degree what your what your limitations are. And I learned, you know, very early in my junior year that my, my job was to pass the ball to Donald and to, if on the rare occasion Donald missed a shot, my job was to rebound it and pass it to him again. Uh, and I think... Because I was more than willing to do those two things, I got to play probably more than I deserved. But um, no, that was another, you know, another really fortunate opportunity in playing for a coach like Eddie Gray, um, and 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 with teammates who literally came from all walks of life. I tell people all the time that I think looking back in my upbringing, you know, I grew up in a very diverse working class neighborhood off of Highway 50, Lakeside Drive, um, you know, and then I, I had the good fortune of participating in athletics growing up through my youth and just got to meet and become friends with and learn about all kinds of different 
people that I, I dare say I might not have been able to get to know and understand in a way um, that, that wouldn't have occurred had I not had that opportunity. So that, that definitely was one of the highlights of, of growing up in the town. Yeah. And you, um, I mean, did you know pretty early on that you wanted to be an educator or did that come to you a little bit later? Yeah, that's a great question. Mom, I thought about that some. I, I, you know, like any other kid growing up, I think you probably change what you're going to be when you grow up about every other day. Um, you know, I, it probably was about my junior year in high school where I realized my aspiration to be in the NBA one day was probably um, not going to come to fruition. Um, you know, they're not looking for, for rebounders and passers per se. Um, but no, I think, you know, obviously growing up with, with two public servants in the household, um, tagging along with my mom to, to school. I remember even before I was attending school as a small child, you know, kind of being in tow with her at Garner Elementary. And, you know, and, and honestly, again, going back to athletics, I, I got into teaching as much for my love of like history and social studies, which is what I what I ended up doing um, as coaching. And I really, really wanted to coach and, um, you know, again, had great mentors and coaches growing up through the ranks. Um, with various folks at various times. And so, you know, I, I learned early on that, you know, the classroom really can be extended well beyond what the the normal brick and mortar of a school is, whether it's a court or a field or, you know, for that matter, in performing arts and other areas as well. So I, I think certainly I was drawn to that um, at an early age. Yeah. And you would eventually become the principal at Garner Magnet. Can you, uh, when, so when were you the principal? Because uh, again, uh, we got a lot of folks who are new to the area and probably don't know that background and um, tell us about that and tell us about a little bit about your tenure and especially tell us what maybe you're most proud of having achieved during during your time yeah. there. Yeah great question so I, I started I came back home um, so to speak um, in 1997 started teaching and coaching at Garner um, as a U.S. history teacher and junior varsity basketball coach working with Coach Gray um, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed and um, eventually went back to school actually at, at the encouragement of, of Coach Gray um, after five or six years of coaching was starting to have a family on my own um, and you know really um, was kind of inspired by some of the folks that I worked for at Garner to explore administration so um, became an assistant principal around 2005 or so spent a couple years in that role and then um, in 2008 uh, 2009 became the principal um, and I, I spent about six years through the fall of 2014 before I um, was provided an opportunity in central services. So, you know, it was a great, great 18, 17 and a half, 18 year run. Um, really, honestly, um, I knew then that I was probably in some ways leaving the, the capstone and the highlight of my professional career. Like I, I just can't imagine ever having any job anywhere that I might go. And I love what I'm doing now every day and I do it with great people. But there was just something special, as you might imagine, about growing up in a community, having been a student at a school, literally going back four or five years later and working beside the people who were your teachers just a few years before, and then having an opportunity that, you know, just a, to me, a once in a lifetime opportunity to become um, the leader of that school and having a faculty that put their heart and soul into everything they did, um, a community that rallied behind every kid in that building, no matter whether or not they had a Garner zip code or not, um, you know, that that was just incredible for me. And so I think, you know, probably what I'm most proud of is just having grown up in the community and having the ability to give back to so many people, many of whom 
um, that I worked with in the community that maybe never even had a student that went through Garner High School that were, you know, they were always there and willing to help support the school, whether it was via businesses, churches, um, you know, athletic booster clubs and those kinds of things. So I think the community aspect is the part that I was most proud of. And then I think, you know, even now looking back, you know, we made some great strides academically in the time that we were there. And that, that honestly was less a reflection on me as it was on just the incredible will and determination that our students, our parents and our, our faculty showed for, you know, a, a long extended period of time uh, when, you know, previously things hadn't always been as positive academically and otherwise. And so, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I feel like we, we turned a corner um, and the school, you know, really began to get some accolades that I think that it had long deserved um, and maybe folks knew about it if you had been there, um, but maybe didn't know about if you hadn't been there. And, you know, and I think since I left, gosh, I can't believe it's been, you know, more than five years now, I, I, the school has continued to, to grow every year. Mr. Hillman um, and the staff there continue to do an outstanding job. And you look at some of the data and metrics, looking at graduation rates, you know, up around 87, 88, pushing 90% now, year in, year out just amazing work that they've done. So I'm, I'm proud of the fact to have been a part of that upward trajectory um, and, and can look back now and, and really feel good about the work that we did. And of course, many of the folks that were there when I was there are still there now. And so I think that stability is something else that makes the school somewhat unique as well. So tell us about your position now at Central Services. Um, is it Assistant Superintendent? Okay. Yes, sir. I've, I've been called worse. <laughs> um, yes, Assistant Superintendent for Academics is is my formal title at the time. Yes, sir. And and what um, can, can you give a layperson's description of what you do, what your responsibilities are, let's say in normal times, and then we'll talk about <laughs> COVID times. Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, I think, you know, primarily as the name would kind of um, allude to, you know, any anything related to pre-k-12 instruction um, including curriculum resources um, instructional technology and working with our tech services department professional learning and training for teachers and staff um, really you know to put it in layman's terms my role and the role of the academics department is to work with our principals and our school leadership teams to ensure that our teachers have the resources and the tools um, and the training that they need to give every one of the 160,000 plus students in the district the best opportunity to be successful every day. And so, as you might imagine, you know, in a district the size of Wake, you know, the 15th largest school district in the country, part of our job and part of my job every day is to try to find that balance between having consistency um, and experience and resources across the district, but also finding um, the ability to allow site-based autonomy and decision-making, you know, given the fact that we've got 190 plus schools, all of them, while similar, right, obviously have some individualized and unique needs as well. And so that's probably one of the biggest challenges in a district the size of ours is making sure that we're creating that consistent baseline for all, um, but at the same time, making sure that we're differentiating and targeting needs, just like we would expect you know, our teachers to do in a classroom um, full of students who have a, a wide range of needs as well. Um, so that's in a nutshell kind of what my role looks like in, in typical circumstances anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
can you tell us how it's how things have changed now with with COVID and with uh, virtual learning? Um, kind of what have what, what's your what's your focus been these days? Yeah, that's um, you know obviously just like every other um, public and private entity or structure um, in our in our world since March, our our world has kind of been turned upside down and, and changed quickly, and so. You know, I think we moved, Rick, from um, just like everybody else in March of having to respond to a an immediate crisis that was kind of dropped on us, right, and and not necessarily having all the resources um, and, and strategy, quite frankly, to be able to manage at least immediately a situation and a scenario like we ended up facing and, and are facing. I won't even use the word past tense. Um, but I do think that, you know, over time, we've been able to be become a little bit more proactive, right, especially as we kind of closed out the 2019-20 school year, which, you know, honestly, our main focus last spring um, with our school closures was to do everything that we could to mitigate or minimize learning loss that we knew was likely to occur when you shut down your schools for the rest of the school year. Um, and, you know, and then also trying to make sure that, you know, we ended the year with some level of normalcy and, and having to do virtual graduations and finding ways to do some celebrations for our seniors and all those kids who had spent so long working so hard and honoring them the way that we needed to um, was really important. And then, you know, kind of shifting gears, you know, in, in April and May as we were closing out one school year in an unprecedented way. Since then, it's been really about planning and preparing for a truly unprecedented opening of a new school year. And so, you know, my role, you know, has has still been in the lane of curriculum instruction, professional learning. Um, but, you know, obviously, just like everybody else and probably not just in education, um, it's kind of a scenario where job descriptions kind of go out the window, you know, and it's, it's an all hands on deck approach. And, um, you know, I think our, our district has worked really, really hard to be collaborative, not just internally, but externally and working with with, you know, our business community and um, parents and other community organizations, in addition to our schools um, to make sure that, you know, we're able to to be as productive as we can be, um, given the circumstances that obviously we're still right smack in the middle of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know it's it's been challenging for every school system. Uh, every individual school, every individual principal. Um, like what, what have y'all noticed as being some of the biggest challenges? Um, and then, you know, I wanted to go maybe more specifically into the equity issues, but I know that equity issues are obviously among the biggest challenges. So. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think that I probably, you know, can try to connect those because I, I think, you know, when we're talking about challenges, I think that certainly is one of the ones at the top of the top of the list. So, you know, we're about, you know, two weeks in now, right? And we, we've talked about the term reopening. I think at this point, reopening has occurred. Um, and so a lot of the first two weeks, um, as you may know, has really been about setting expectations and norms for kids and families and for teachers and staff for that matter in a way that are, you know, very different than perhaps what was the case in the past. Um, providing orientation opportunities for families um, to, to the degree possible, get to know their school, um, pick up resources and materials. A lot of the things that, you know, we didn't have the capacity to be able to do once we shut down last spring. Um, and, and, 
more than anything, I think our focus has been in these first few weeks and will continue to be on building relationships. Um, you know, and on top of device distribution and materials, which obviously one of the challenges, as you would expect, like any other district right now that's fully online, um, we've got to make sure that we've got devices in the hands of our kids and families so that they can access learning. Um, and, you know, we had, I think, 30,000 devices that were distributed last spring. Um, I think that, you know, we're on our way to distributing, I believe, another 48,000 devices this fall. Um, you know, and I think we're kind of in the final stages now of doing that. And so clearly, and, and I think on top of that, 15,000 hotspots, right? And understanding that just putting a device in a child's hand is not necessarily in and of itself enough to ensure they're connected. Um, and, you know, and speaking of those 15,000 hotspots, that's, that's a, a reflection, I think, of our efforts to ensure that we don't have large numbers of kids and families that are disconnected. And I, I think you, you talked about a challenge. I, I do think that we, we acknowledge, and one of our biggest concerns <clears throat> is the thought of having a child somewhere right now as we speak who wants to learn and who wants to be engaged but cannot because for whatever reason they don't have access to some resource, whether it's a computer, a hotspot, um, or even have a safe environment to sit quietly and work and learn with an adult on the other side of the computer screen. And so, you know, we've, we've got some incredible teams at the district level um, in our equity affairs office that, you know, are very proactive in reaching out to community leaders and families to make sure we're hearing issues bubble up when they occur and we can mobilize to address them. Um, you know, our student support services staff at the district level is doing the same thing. Um, you know, I can tell you we're, we're analyzing right now attendance numbers over the first couple of weeks to identify, hey, how many, how many kids are logging in? Where are the, the schools perhaps or the nodes within those schools that maybe we're seeing lower numbers? And what can we do to help schools to help engage those families? And all of that is in addition to and not in place of what every single one of our schools are doing. And um, you know, so I, I think absolutely, Rick, when we're talking about a challenge, the equity issue is, is probably at the top of the list. And, and we do worry, as any other district um, worries right now about the, the long-term impact, the longer we go in this type of environment, um, you know, what are the implications that, that may occur for our students um, even after we return to in-person instruction? And so I think we've, we're doing everything we possibly can to make sure our kids are engaged. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad before I'm a school administrator and I've got a, um, you know, in addition to a college student right now who's fully online, I've got a 16 year old um, who's in, in the system and, you know, I've watched her own experience. And so, you know, as you might imagine, I learned quite a bit, you know, watching my own child. And there's been a few times when she'll come to me and say, dad, why are y'all doing this? Or why am I having to do this? And so I get some immediate feedback from her and her mom um, in terms of areas that we can improve. And, you know, certainly in, in, in going to that same challenge, um, you know, I think we also recognize we're talking about a lot of screen time. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that we knew our, in our, as our community demanded and rightfully so that the online learning experience, the remote experience this fall could not replicate what we did in the spring, which was much more of a short term, again, crisis management type approach to mitigating loss. Now we're talking about proactively teaching new content, new material, core instruction. Um, so we know that the level of rigor has to be increased, but 
I think we're, you know, we're also very conscientious of the fact that we're, you know, we're asking kids to be in front of a computer screen for, you know, a good bit of time on average, two to three hours a day for live instruction. Um, and that's not, not counting even some of the, the non live asynchronous work that they might be doing that still involves a computer screen. So those are some areas I think early on that we're, you know, gathering data, gathering feedback. And, you know, as we've said all along, we, we want to be consistent but we also want to be responsive. And so, you know, I, I think um, it's great to work for an organization that has the courage to make adjustments and change course whenever we need to. And I think we we purposely have left the door open in as much as we can to making adjustments to best meet the needs of our kids, our teachers and our families based on the real feedback that we get as opposed to what we anticipate might be the case. And so we're obviously right now in the early stages of that work. And, and so, you know, obviously you've got different challenges with different grades, different age groups, and a lot of the parental feedback frustrations I've heard personally come, you know, the challenges with, with the younger kids in particular. It's one thing to expect, uh, you know, maybe a high school student to, to spend two or three hours of, of live instruction and then do his or her work asynchronously, I guess that's the word. But trying to have having anything like similar expectations of like K through three is, is, you know, that's tough. Have you, I mean, have you obviously been getting that type of feedback, I'm sure from parents and are you, how are you trying to work through some of those challenges? Yeah. And, and, and you're right, Rick. I think that, you know, we, again, I think what we're talking about is balancing rigor with reality in, in many cases. Um, and, you know, I think when we're talking about screen time and we're talking about supervision and the need for adult interaction and support, obviously that's, that's particularly a challenge for our younger students. And I think we've, we've known that all along. And I think the first couple of weeks of our experience has borne that out. Although, you know, even at the early grades levels, most of the feedback has been positive. Um, you know, I think one of the questions that we're going to have to answer is, you know, can we sustain the pace that we're on and, um, you know, what are the longer term implications once we're several weeks in, both in terms of the workload for our teachers, but also the experience for our younger students. Um, so I think, you know, building in more breaks, you know, I think when we provided guidance to our schools around scheduling, um, you know, we we recognize, as you just referenced, Rick, that it, the learning is a little different and should be for a high school student than, say, a first grader especially when we're talking about an online environment. And so I think trying to have smaller chunks and more breaks built in um, to the, the live instruction schedule, particularly for our elementary kids, our younger ones in, in, in specifically. Um, we've also, I think at the district level, done an awful lot of distribution of hard copy instructional materials out to our schools that then go out to our elementary students. Um, and that's, that's pre-K-12, but you know, most of the, the core instructional materials, and we've, we have already distributed, you know, north of 300,000 core instructional materials, which include workbooks and manipulatives. Um, you know, I think our pre-K department has helped put together 2,500 learning and consumable take-home bags for pre-K students. So, you know, I, I think we, we're doing what we can to minimize the screen time when it's appropriate to do so by making sure students have access to other hard copy resources and maybe more traditional materials 
even in a fully online environment. Um, and so I, I, I definitely think that's an area that we'll continue to monitor, get feedback on. And again, you know, we'll we'll make adjustments as needed to meet the needs um, of our students. And there's no doubt that a younger child requires more adult oversight in an online environment, you know, just accessing content in an online environment, um, which is much easier to do, obviously, for my 16-year-old. Um, what about some of the long-term, and you've kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, uh, at least a little bit, you know, what, what do you think, what concerns you most about the long-term impact that, you know, this could have on students, whether it's, you know, learning loss or, you know, increasing disparities between, uh, students and, um, gosh, the mental health impact, I know is a, that's a whole big thing, you know, unto itself. What, what do you see as, as being some of the, yeah, the long-term stuff? That's another important question. I, I think like like anybody else in this field right now, whether you're a parent or you're on the professional side as an educator, we have to be thinking about what those implications are, right? And I think the reality is, is that the longer this goes um, in its duration, as far as its direct impact on how teaching and learning happens, then the, the longer um, I think we can expect there to be some implications down the road and the impact that that has on kids. I think that whether you're a high school senior right now who is in you know, their penultimate year and you're preparing college applications and um, you know, just you know, in ordinary circumstances, a really important transition year or that kindergarten student yeah, right, yeah. that hasn't yet physically seen their teacher and who, you know, unfortunately right now, their only knowledge and experience with what going to school is might be looking into a computer screen every day. And I don't, I don't think as hard as we're working to, to give every opportunity for success, I don't think any of us discount what that might feel like in those two kind of extremes, right, developmentally speaking. Um, you know, there, you know, we, for the high school student, there are limitations right now on the ability to take, like, in some cases, standardized assessments that might be more limited in their nature. We know college and universities are adjusting their admissions requirements in some cases. Um, you know, all kinds of things. You have to think about early grades literacy and what impact this kind of learning environment has on that. And so a lot of what, you know, our, our central services departments have done um, already just thinking about last year and some of the gaps that may have occurred in learning we've we've tried to be proactive and created kind of you know crosswalks around our our state standards and our core curriculum to make sure that if there is learning that maybe typically would have already occurred for a third grader for example at the end of the 1920 school year we need to make sure that we're intentional about bridging that gap at the beginning of the 2021 school year. And that's just one example of many. And so I, I, I do think that we've got to be continuously reflective on how our kids are doing. And again, the longer this goes, then I think the, the deeper the implications are going to be um, in the years ahead. Um, and I, I think we've got to be prepared to address that, not just when we get there, but along the way as well. So yeah, so um, and I noticed in in doing some uh, research before the interview that y'all are working with uh, a scientific advisory board that has some connection to Duke and I believe maybe the National Institutes of Health. How are you working with them, and how will that influence your decision about when you can safely return for for those who will return? 
Yeah, uh, and first of all, I think we we are so fortunate to um, live and work in the research triangle and and having access to um, some great universities and and post secondary learning institutions. Um, regardless of who your allegiance might lie to, um, in terms of NC State, Carolina, Duke, I think we're all fortunate to have all of those universities um, providing support in various ways. So the opportunity came along, um, I think, just within the last month um, to form this relationship along with some other districts in North Carolina. And, and really, for, for lack of a better term, it's all about taking a, a really data-driven approach to our decision-making moving forward. Um, you know, ensuring that we've got a family and community centered approach to providing guidance to keep our, our children, our teachers and our community healthy um, is obviously a priority. Um, and, and so having partners like Duke University and their medical and research specialists to help partner with us on this decision making, I think is going to be critical moving forward and not just in terms um, about, you know, the, the decision making that our district will need to make in in uh, from a standpoint of when and how we transition to in-person, but even, you know, looking at, um, you know, national data and regional data um, and, and learning lessons that can be applied in the way that we set up our systems and structures. It could even involve, you know, taking a, a deeper look at our, our health protocols, um, both, you know, for our staff that are participating in those right now um, as they return to buildings and for our students if and when they return to buildings. And so I, I think we feel really good about the partnership. Obviously, it's really early on, and so there's a lot of details to be worked out. Um, but I, I think it will provide a district like the Wake County Public School System the opportunity to have some, some expertise in a way that obviously we couldn't have otherwise. Um, so that we truly are making collaborative decisions that are based on science and also based on you know, the needs of our community um, in a way that we probably couldn't do if we were trying to do that just in, in isolation as a school district. So I, I think we're really excited about the potential that this partnership has um, in the short term and in the long term, you know, for the remainder of the school year and beyond. Yeah. So we're hopeful and we expect at some point um, we'll be able to bring some students back, uh, maybe gradually and, and with some sort of hybrid plan B or whatever it is. Um, what, what are y'all looking at, at doing? Um, who, you know, who would come back first? What are your priorities? Um, what, what are your cohorts maybe going to look like? How, how are you thinking about those things these days? Yes, sir. So, um, you know, I think at, at present, obviously, you know, per the previous question and conversation around the, the scientific advisory board, you know, certainly some of the information that we might, um, learn in consultation and collaboration with that group will be helpful in making any adjustments to, to what our plans might look like. Um, but I think, you know, at present, um, you know, I think officially we're calling it plan B transition so that we, we do have a plan or we, we do have an aspiration to move back to in-person. I think we all know and recognize the, the great value of, of being able to get kids back in classroom where ultimately we want them to be able um, to, to learn every single day. Um, I think you're aware going back to July, um, you know, we've got a three tiered approach that's kind of been structured and developed so that if and when we do make decisions about moving safely back to in-person instruction, it may be that whether it's across grade levels or we start with some targeted grade levels, 
um, you know, we would consider bringing kids back in thirds in perhaps three cohorts and kind of a, a one week in person, two week remote kind of rotation, um, you know, so that we're minimizing the number of kids that are in a classroom and their contact and exposure with each other at one given time. Um, you know, and I, I think, again, a lot yet is yet to be determined about, you know, whether or not we'll be able to do that um, in the near future. I think, you know, obviously we would love to be able to um, begin bringing kids back. I think right now we're committed to, uh, you know, a fully online environment, probably um, through the first quarter, the first uh, quarter grading period, which takes us into mid-October. Um, but, you know, I think the expectation is, is that if and when we do go back, at least at present, our plan would involve some type of a rotation, which, as you would imagine, has its own challenges, right? And, you know, and, and the, the thought of a teacher, for example, who has one third of his or her students in front of them and the other two thirds are remote, um, yeah. you know, just adds one more layer of complexity to what teaching and learning looks like. So, um, you know, that's certainly another one of those structures that we we can troubleshoot and try to anticipate as many challenges and mitigate those up front as we can. But I think we also recognize that we're going to have to be prepared to make adjustments um, as needed to best meet the needs of kids um, in that type of environment. So right now, that's the structure that we have in place. And, um, you know, obviously, as soon as we're safely able to do so, however, we might define that right. Um, I think that's the structure and the framework that we would we would move forward with. All right. Well, um, gosh, I, that, thank you so much. I know you're extremely busy, and for you to take a half hour, an hour out of your your day to to, to be with us is is I know a big deal for you. Um, you know, we always appreciated everything you did for Garner and for Garner Magnet and. As you know, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. Garner is now a two high school town, which changes uh, has changed the character of things a little, and what will continue to. What, what what's your take on on Garner kind of growing and uh, evolving into that two high school town now? Yeah, I think I, you and I were joking earlier, right? I, you know, I, there's a lot of things that I miss, um, you know, about high school and Garner and Garner High School, but I, I don't necessarily miss that. Uh, the thought of having to manage that dynamic and just kind of the um, the allegiances somewhat being split for the first time. And I, I think it's it's new for everyone. Right. And obviously, you know, I, I'm a big supporter of the Wake County public school system, but I can just tell you my allegiance will always rest with the blue and gold at Garner Magnet High School. And my friend Roderick Brewington, the principal over at South Garner, knows I'm an ardent supporter of his and, and South Garner. Um, but he he knows well where my allegiances lie when it comes down to it. But, you know, like we were talking about, Rick, I think that it's a good thing um, as challenging as it is um, and as difficult. And it's an emotional thing. Right. When you've had multi generations that have gone to a singular school with the name of the town on the front of it. Right. I, I think it's really an emotional thing for families to realize that that's not the given anymore if you're growing up in Garner. Um, you could end up at, at what I would say is one of two world-class comprehensive public high schools with all kinds of resources and opportunities that are available to kids. And so in that in that respect, you know, athletic rivalries aside that are still budding and growing, right, and will be growing in the future, 
I, I think it's a great thing that the town has two really high quality schools with great people. You look at the, the facilities there, um, you know, you've got essentially two brand new high school facilities um, that probably very few communities across the state um, could compare to in that sense. And so, you know, ultimately, I think that word does get out. Garner is a great place to be. Um, and when you have a great place to be and a great place to live, people want to move there. And eventually you kind of outgrow the, the one school that you've got. And so I, I do think Garner is certainly a big enough and dynamic enough community that I'm, I'm pretty confident that we can support two large high schools. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and uh, stay safe. Hope your family stays safe and well. And um, thanks for all the work you're doing for the school system. We appreciate it. And uh, hope we get to talk again soon. It was, it, it was a long time in between our, our, our meetings, our chats. And I uh, hope it's not such a long time in the future. Yeah, would love, would love to catch up again. Again, thank you so much, Rick, for the opportunity. And, um, you know, again, love, love the town of Garner. It's always going to be home. And go Trojans. <laughs> and with that, we'll, uh, we'll take leave. Um, see you next time, everyone. You can uh, find this episode and others on our YouTube channel, Town of Garner. Uh, look us up, Town of Garner, on YouTube. Uh, you can also find the podcast uh, on anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>